You're listening to Earth Matters with Nikki Stott, produced on the lands of the Woiwurrung and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation, where sovereignty has never been ceded. And I pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander peoples who are listening today. Between 1946 to 1998, world players in the nuclear armaments industry conducted more than 2,000 nuclear test explosions around the world, including more than 310 nuclear tests that were conducted in the Pacific Ocean during this time by the United States, Britain and France. Across the region, including in Australia, protests and direct action campaigns against nuclear testing were organised from the 1950s, at first for nuclear disarmament and later for the rights of survivors of nuclear testing. Today on the show, we'll hear from Pacific Islands-based journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, who spoke recently with Jan Bartlett from 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne's Tuesday Home Time program about how many of these old-school activists are now sadly passing on. But also how there is hope in a new generation of activists who are now rising up and taking on that same fight for global nuclear disarmament and in particular the ongoing fight for the rights of nuclear survivors that continues to this day. We've spoken many times over the years, Nick, about the nuclear tests in the Pacific, and it's come a time now when a number of those activists from those years are passing on themselves. Yeah, it's been really tragic over the last three years that uh, really a whole generation of anti-nuclear campaigners, people who were really instrumental in raising uh, the issue of nuclear testing, both the campaign against testing while it was going on between 1946 and 1996, more than 310 nuclear tests across the region, but also, more importantly, people who kept campaigning for the rights of nuclear survivors. Many people across Australia... Marshall Islands, uh, Kiribati, French Polynesia and other sites were affected by health and environmental impacts of uh, the nuclear testing. And there's a generation of people who, since the end of testing in '96, have been campaigning for the rights of those people affected, calling for compensation, reparations, medical support for people whose health has been affected by nuclear testing. How successful have they been in winning those rights? Slowly, slowly, they've been quite successful, but the battle's never over. In both the Marshall Islands, in Australia, and in French Polynesia, there are systems that have been created for compensation for people whose health is affected. In all three cases, however, the original creation of the scheme was insufficient to meet the range of health and environmental impacts and placed enormous burden on nuclear survivors, whether they be civilian or military, to prove that their health problems, their cancers, their leukaemia, whatever, was caused by the nuclear testing. So in French Polynesia, for example, for many years the French government denied that their 30 years of nuclear testing between 66 and 96 caused health problems. Indeed, just last year, um, President um, 
Edouard Fritsch of French Polynesia, who'd been a right-wing uh, political leader for many, many years, uh, lieutenant to long-serving President Gaston Flosse during the nuclear period, he admitted in, in the Territorial Assembly that he'd lied about how safe the tests were, that he'd openly lied about the, the lack of health challenges and so on. And for the nuclear campaigners, particularly in a group called Muro Etato, Muro Anas, um, who'd been campaigning for compensation, they were not surprisingly angry that, that they'd known for a long time that there were health effects. And sadly, we've seen uh, three key leaders of Muro Etato die in the last three years. The French have finally admitted that there were health impacts. They've set up a compensation scheme, but there's still a battle to change the onus of proof. Really, the the French state should have the responsibility to prove that someone's cancer was not caused by their service on Muro on Fangatofa atolls, on the nuclear test sites. Instead, the onus is for the worker who worked on the test site to prove that their cancer was caused by their service there. And that's really difficult because you can get lung cancer from smoking, you can get lung cancer from all sorts of sources, so to actually prove that it was caused by your exposure to radiation. Um, But we know that there were people given dirty, difficult, dangerous jobs on the test sites. Um, Some years ago I interviewed a guy, Raymond, whose job was uh, as a diver, scuba diver, to dive into Mururoa Lagoon after underground tests were held. Um, they used to drill a hole in the basalt base of Mururoa Atoll in the lagoon, uh, put the bomb at the bottom, plug it up with concrete, and then exploded. The idea that the, the radioactive isotopes would be fused into the basalt rock um, of the base of the atoll uh, at massive heat you know, caused by a nuclear explosion. But they sent Raymond to dive into the lagoon to take water samples after, basically to see whether the concrete plug had leaked or whether radioactive isotopes like tritium were leaking into the marine environment from cracks in the rock. And we know today, of course, that there were enormous fissures and cracks in Motoroa Atoll, something that the environment movement said for 40 years, but was been denied successively by the French and the local government for, for decades. You know, we know through the atomic International Atomic Energy Agency, which is no radical body, uh, that there's at least five kilograms of plutonium scattered in tiny particles through the sediments of Mururoa Lagoon. So Raymond's job, who was to dive into the lagoon to take samples, obviously caused him terrible health problems. He died, sadly, some years ago. And when I interviewed him, he was, you know, saying, it's pretty clear that I was at risk. It was clear that I was given the shit job that they wouldn't give to a Frenchman. Why won't they take responsibility for looking after me now that I'm sick. And um, there were three great champions who did campaign for the rights of the Mororoa and Fungotofa workers. A church leader named John Doom, a French researcher named Bruno Barrio, and a Maui Polynesian trade unionist, uh, Roland Oldham. Um, Those three men co-founded Mororoa Etato in 2001 um, and spent uh, nearly two decades campaigning for compensation for the thousands of workers um, who'd staffed the test sites over that 30-year period. And Roland, uh, he was uh, very active in a whole range of social justice campaigns, but he was chosen as president of Mordorei Tato uh, when it was founded in 2001 and remained that until his death uh, just uh, weeks ago from cancer. 
He continued to, since John's death in Christmas Eve 2016, Bruno's death uh, in uh, March last year, and now tragically Roland's death this year, um, that generation of people who were absolutely central to keeping this issue alive when people think, oh, the nuclear era is over. Um, well, we know it's not. Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un are reminding us that the the nuclear issue is, is still with us. Um, ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, shows that, that it's still with us. And indeed, Roland travelled uh, from Tahiti to New York in 2017 to campaign and lobby with the team from Melbourne, um, from ICANN, to include in the new Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons a section on the rights of nuclear survivors. And countries that sign on to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons have obligations as a state party to support and assist nuclear survivors in terms of their health, in terms of their compensation and so on. That's, as I say, unprecedented in any disarmament treaty. And it was the work of people like Roland, like ICANN activists, indeed Indigenous activists from Australia, Karina Lester, were party to that, um, uh, making this a really important part of the treaty, not only cleaning up the environmental impacts of nuclear testing, but also addressing the rights and the, the, uh, the health of people who participated in the testing program. Would you say that the rights or lack of rights for the people resulting from the French and the US tests were any different? The Americans have a very litigious tradition and so they've set up a nuclear claims tribunal in the Marshall Islands um, and through the court system a whole series of judgments have been brought down uh, recognising health and environmental impacts. Um, the nuclear claims tribunal in the Marshall Islands has issued rulings amounting to $2.6 billion for compensation. The problem is, however, that um, in the Marshalls, the American government has refused to provide the necessary money to pay all the people whose property was damaged, whose lives were affected, whose health was affected. Some years ago, I interviewed um, a woman named Lemieux Arbon. Mrs. Arbon was a young girl, 14 years old, in um, the island of Rongelap, uh, it's one of the northern islands in the Marshall Islands. And on the 1st of March 1954, a nuclear test called Bravo, codenamed Bravo, exploded into the sky. It was the largest nuclear test ever conducted by the United States. It was a 15 megaton nuclear test. That's the equivalent of 15 million tonnes of TNT. Now, the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima was 15 kilotons, 15,000, 15,000 tonnes of TNT, roughly. Um, this was 15 million, so you can imagine the enormity of the blast. And the radioactive isotope spread across the northern atolls. I interviewed Lemio and uh, another woman, Rinok Ricklon, both young girls at the time, and they talked about, like, snow falling from the sky, and they thought it was soap, and they rubbed it in their hair. They lost their hair within days from radiation uh, poisoning. Um, many people from the northern atolls died, in subsequent years, but Lemio um, was an ongoing campaigner into her old age. Uh, she and uh, uh, Mrs. Ricklon were, were both forthright campaigners, spoke many times about how it had affected their health, their reproductive health, uh, and were very involved in campaigning for reparations and clean-up of the atolls, not just uh, funding to help with their own health problems, but also the clean-up their atoll so they could go home because... Um, 
she was one of the people evacuated by the Rainbow Warrior, um, the ship that was later blown up by French terrorists in Auckland Harbour. They were removed from their home island because of the radiation hazards, isotopes like cesium-137 coming into the coconuts, uh, coming into the food crops, um, affecting the fish and so on. And so um, Mrs. Arbonne lived in exile for her pretty much her whole life. And sadly, she died in February last year after a long period campaigning for uh, the rights of people there. In Australia too, uh, the British have refused seriously to address questions of reparations and compensation. And uh, the great champion for Indigenous people in Australia was Yami Lester, once again, who passed away in the last couple of years. Um, um, Yami Lester, who was effectively blinded by the Totem 1 test, 1953 British atomic test at uh, Emu Field. And um, uh, he was famous for raising the issue of the, the black cloud, um, the the um, contamination, uh, the dust and so on, and uh, lived with blindness for most of his life, uh, uh, which he attributed to the, the Emu testing. You also work with people from Fiji. The same issue applies everywhere, um, uh, the British, having finished their atomic testing in Australia, continued hydrogen bomb testing, the testing of thermonuclear weapons, larger, more powerful weapons, in uh, what's today Kiribati on Christmas Island and uh, uh, Malden Island in the uh, the Line Islands, which is the, the easternmost part of what's today the Republic of Kiribati. The uh, Fijian military personnel, British military personnel, who were deployed to uh, Christmas Island, Uh, suffered many of the health consequences that um, other people in nuclear testing areas have, short-term radiation exposure, longer-term problems related to ingestion or uh, inhalation of uh, uh, radioactive particles, cancers, leukaemias, and uh, and so on. And there's uh, been a very active campaign. The British government, however, unlike the Americans and the French at least, refuses to accept the rights of um, former nuclear personnel, military or civilian. Um, there's no compensation scheme established by the British government. When um, Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex and his bride, uh, toured the Pacific last year, uh, they travelled to Fiji. Um, he unveiled a, uh, uh, a statue for a Fijian who'd served in the British SAS in uh, Oman, uh, um, you know, involved in British counterinsurgency operations in the form of British colonies in the Yemen. But uh, there's silence from the the Duke of Sussex, who's famously created the Invictus Games. He was here for the Invictus Games in Australia, you know, that, that are there to, to support injured service personnel. But there's no mention from Prince Harry or his entourage about the Fijians who'd served the British Empire with the Christmas Island nuclear testing. And that's the sort of scandal that, that continues to this day and sees men in their 80s, early 80s, still calling for reparations, for compensation, for recognition. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today on the show, Pacific Islands-based journalist and researcher Nick McClellan speaking with Jan Bartlett about how many of the old-school campaign activists in support of survivors of nuclear testing are now sadly passing on, but also how a new generation of activists are rising up and taking on that same fight. Talk more about the next generation coming on who are 
supporting and keeping this issue alive. And that's the that's the the thing that's that's so important and so encouraging. You know, nuclear testing ended in 1996. The last French test began in 1946. So there was 50 years of nuclear testing across the Pacific, in Australia, in Kiribati, in Johnston Atoll, in French Polynesia, in the Marshall Islands. And that generation who were there during that period in the 20th century are now getting old and passing on. But a younger generation have picked up the torch. We mentioned Yami Lester, his daughter Karina, active Indigenous activist from uh, South Australia, travelled to New York to join in the campaigning alongside Roland Oldham from French Polynesia to strengthen the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And Karina was uh, a really crucial uh, player in, in bringing forward the issue of the rights of Indigenous peoples in the nuclear period because most nuclear weapons testing was done on the land or the waters of Indigenous peoples. Um, and uh, Karina took a statement signed from people across Oceania, from Australia, New Zealand, uh, the Pacific Islands, to those global negotiations um, that created the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And she spoke at the plenary at the United Nations, calling for recognition of Indigenous peoples and reparations, compensation, assistance to nuclear survivors. And as I mentioned, that that now is a, a section of the treaty. A number of countries have signed... Um, the treaty. Uh, many have ratified. Palau's ratified. New Zealand signed and ratified. Um, uh, many of our neighbours, um, uh, Fiji has signed it. Uh, um, you know, Kiribati has signed it. Tuvalu. Uh, you know, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia. Guess which country hasn't signed it? Aotearoa. New Zealand has both signed and ratified the treaty. Our government has refused to participate in the negotiations. And who are the younger generation in the Pacific? Well, Karina's, you know, matched by people across the region uh, in the Marshall Islands. Um, uh, a new generation of young people have heard the tales from their parents, their grandparents, about what it was like uh, living with the, the consequences of very high cancer rates uh, in a society, um, still know that the northern atolls are very badly polluted, that there are people who can't go back. Um, every year on the 1st of March, the anniversary of the Bravo nuclear test, the Marshall Islands government and churches and community hold a ceremony in Majuro, the capital, for people, particularly from Bikini, from Eniwetok, uh, from other places, who've been uh, uh, living for decades. And the young kids at Egypt, one of the islands where the Bikinians are, um, wear school T-shirts emblazoned with a nuclear mushroom cloud to remember, to remember. And so you have um, Kathy uh, Jetnell Kitchener, well-known Marshallese performance poet, who's just done a wonderful piece. She did a poem called History Lesson, um, which is uh, worth looking at. It's on YouTube. Uh, if you just Google History Lesson and uh, Marshall Islands Nuclear, um, it comes up. It's a 10-minute performance um, that really tells the history of the nuclear testing. But just last year, she did a uh, another piece called Anointed. Once again, if you Google on YouTube, uh, Anointed, Kathy. Uh, it'll come up. And she travelled with a young filmmaker to uh, Eniwetok Atoll. Bikini is well known, but Eniwetok was the second site uh, where 67 American nuclear tests were held in the Marshall Islands. And on one of the islands in Eniwetok Atoll, Runit, uh, there's a massive concrete dome, enormous, uh, spreads, you know, a huge, huge area. 
and covers 73,000 cubic metres of nuclear contamination. Basically, after the tests, the Americans bulldozed a whole lot of contaminated materials, contaminated soil, into a hole, into a crater left by one of the, the nuclear blasts that it vaporised vaporized a, a, a one little islet. Um, then they just covered it in concrete. And um, as anyone who's looked at a footpath recently knows, concrete doesn't last that long. So this was done in the 1970s. Um, the concrete is cracking now and leaching radioactive materials into the marine environment. Who's testing it? Uh, well, no one. And that's the problem. The Americans have basically given up their responsibility for, for addressing these sorts of problems. I had the, the same experience. I travelled to Algeria in 2007 uh, with a delegation to, to meet with the people who were survivors of um, the French nuclear testing. And we went to a place called Inekera, which is a mountain range in the middle of the Sahara Desert. The French conducted 13 underground tests by drilling tunnels into the side of the mountain, putting the bomb at the end and then plugging it up with concrete and blowing the bomb inside the mountain, once again with the idea of fusing the you know radioactive explosion into the basalt base of these mountain range. The problem was in four of the 13 tests, they blew a hole in the side of the mountain. You can see lava flows down the side of the mountain, and those lava flows are contaminated with plutonium. For a long time it was uh, silent because, um, you know, the Algerian National Liberation Front, FLN, fought... Uh, uh, for independence. It was a terrible bloody war from 1954 to 1962. More than a million people died. It was a vicious, vicious war on by the French against the anti-colonial movement. But part of the Evian peace deal um, that ended the war allowed the French to keep military bases in the country for five years. And during that period, the French continued their military base uh, in the Sahara Desert for nuclear testing. So there were a number of nuclear tests conducted after independence and for a long time neither the French government nor the Algerian government wanted to talk about this. So between 1962, independence, and 1965, French continued underground nuclear testing in the Algerian desert and during that time they were building the base at Mouroroa and Vangatova Atoll. And when the base in the South Pacific was ready, the nuclear testing centre was ready, they relocated from Algeria to the South Pacific. But neither the French nor the Algerians really wanted to say, well, the Algerian National Liberation Front won a great victory against French colonialism, but we let them keep testing nuclear weapons in the desert afterwards. It sort of takes a bit of the gloss off the great victory. So there was a silence about it for many decades. And indeed, it was only in 2007 when France was proposing to sign a new uh, peace and trade deal with um, uh, the Algerian government that some people in Algeria said, hang on, you guys haven't cleaned up the mess that you left during the nuclear testing period. And there was a major congress in um, Algiers, uh, the first time ever, decades after the end of the, um, the, the war, uh, where Algerians spoke about the health consequences. And it was a terribly moving, moving thing. I mean, I met um, a guy who'd been a an FLN prisoner in jail uh, with colleagues. And one day they were taken out of jail, flown south to uh, Regan in the middle of the Sahara Desert and were told to dig a whole lot of trenches. And what that was was the trenches for the cabling 
between the bunker where the French scientists were and where France did its four atmospheric nuclear tests. Before they did underground testing, they did four nuclear tests in the atmosphere. And these FLN prisoners were used to dig the trenches for the cabling into the contaminated test site. And after they dug the trenches, these poor bastards were put on a, fly- on a plane and flown back and thrown back in prison. And um, he hadn't told his story before. Not surprisingly, there weren't many records on the French side about what they'd done. And there was a whole series of stories like that. A wonderful Iraqi guy who was an Iraqi dissident who'd fled Saddam and ended up, um, he was a left-wing dissident against Saddam Hussein, ended up in Algeria for sanctuary. He was an expert on camels. We were sitting at morning tea and he started asking me about camels in Alice Springs. He'd been to Alice Springs, he knew about all the cameleers and he knew about the history, the Afghan history of Australia, more than I did, frankly. He'd been studying how camels had been affected by the nuclear testing around Ineke, the water uh, sites, the oases, the wadis, had been polluted by nuclear testing. And he'd been doing this study, uh, supposedly about the camels, but also interviewing the Tureg nomads who used those sites and found all the health problems that the Tureg nomads had. So this is a global story. From the deserts of Algeria to the Kazakh plains to Lopnor in China to India and Pakistan to the furthest islands of the Pacific, this is a global story. And the nuclear era has created sacrifice zones all around the globe. And many of these areas are contaminated beyond remediation. It's going to take another four decades to clean up Fukushima and billions of dollars. And you still hear Ningnongs talk about how we need to go nuclear to address climate change. Okay, let's think about the challenges of climate change, but let's clean up the mess that was created during the 20th century, during the nuclear era, and let's address the rights of the indigenous peoples who bore the brunt, by and large, and the military personnel who staffed the test sites. Let's address the issues of health, of compensation, of reparations, of clean-up. There's a lot of work to be done. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today on the show we heard from Pacific Islands-based journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, speaking with Jan Bartlett from 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne's Tuesday Home Time program about how many of the old-school campaign activists in support of survivors of nuclear testing in the Pacific, Australia and elsewhere are now sadly passing on but also how a new generation of activists are rising up and taking on that same fight. If you want to know more about this topic, you can check out Nick's latest book, Grappling with the Bomb, Britain's Pacific H-Bomb Tests. It came out in 2017 through ANU Press. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in bringing you this program today and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne. And we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories.